Welcome to episode 320 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Do you remember what you were doing on March 13th, 2020, when a worldwide pandemic brought all in-person events to a screeching halt? Three years later, it's likely you now have Zoom basics down. The problem is that basic skills are not enough to stand out as a top-notch virtual presenter. I wrote a book to help you create transformative, inclusive, and engaging online experiences. Break out of boredom, low-tech solutions for highly engaging Zoom events, shares how to use the latest features and online facilitation techniques to structure our events so everyone feels welcomed instead of merely invited. I'm a virtual event design consultant and executive Zoom producer. This book is a culmination of what I've learned supporting organizations over the last three years. If virtual programming is part of your business model, you cannot afford to use skills and settings stuck in 2020. This book will launch on March 13th, 2023. Join the book launch team at robbysamuels.com forward slash breakout launch to receive early access and bonus content, including a free training on this topic on March 1st. Again, you can sign up at robbysamuels.com forward slash breakout launch. Now onto this week's interview. Today's guest is a people sculptor. Bringing an innovative, straightforward approach, she pushes individuals to leave their subject matter expert mindset behind and become relationship-oriented leaders that drive their organizations into the future. With a keen talent to anticipate and respond, she helps her clients create actionable plans that mitigate risks and open new avenues of opportunity. She has worked in operational risk management as a health and safety advisor and in financial risk management at a derivatives trading desk. Today, she centers her career around transformational risk management, where she partners with clients to develop leadership resilience and design foresight strategies for deployment. Please join me in welcoming Ebony Smith. Ebony, welcome. Hello to all of your listeners. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us from your place in Miami, Florida. You're probably having a lot better weather than we are up here. Um, I, I wanted to share like, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So as a coach, the definition of leadership for me changed. So first of all, my the definition I always tell people, the leader is the person who knows the next best move for the team. Regardless of hierarchy, where you are, it's the person who knows the next best move. And then on great teams, it can shift like 20 times in 30 minutes. And that's really what great teams are all about. I love that. I love the, con- the context placement of that, the next best move. I've actually, I love that I can do this for 300 plus episodes and hear a new definition of leadership. It sounds hard to do, but you just did it. <clears throat> so when did you first start realizing you had some of those skills? Um, I would say... The trading desk. Well, actually, it started with the safety job. When I was in safety, um, doing construction safety, 
I was the auditor, the advisor, the trainer for my construction crew. We were work, working on putting in oil pipelines. And I remember very early on out of grad school, I didn't really know a lot. I knew the, the laws, but I didn't have any practical experience doing field engineering. And my very first like big spill that was where we were doing construction overnight, big project. And I had to work the night shift and I was with a crew that had been working longer than I'd been alive. But I was second in command because I was uh, management. I said, so I know technically all the things I should be doing because I'm, you know, in the first 60 days of the job, but also am open to advice. And so the one guy said to me, don't worry, we're not going to let you kill us. So I was like, I know all the textbook stuff, but this is my like, I'm on like week four. And so they were like, yeah, don't worry. And they were like really giving. And then that was my team for like the next four years I was at the company. And that's when I learned, like, you may be the person who has the hierarchy, but you may not be the subject matter expert. And so your job as the person who's, who's leading is to say, I like your professional experience here. Right. And that's what they did for me. <laughs> that quote, don't worry, we're not going to let you kill us. <laughs> <laughs> Like literally, he was like, don't, we're not going to let you do this. Right, right. <laughs> but you probably also charmed them by being so open. I think a lot of people in your role in that moment could have felt really defensive that you had to like prove something about your leadership title. But you were, you were like very clear that you had book smarts, but they had lived experience that was so critical for that moment that you needed to hear that. And by, by willingly saying like, please give me some advice, you know, help, help us all do this really well, as opposed to just, you know, reading off a chart. <laughs> um, you probably, you built a better team that way. Yeah, you know, I think it's always best to respect people's humanity. And so my goal as a leader in that moment was to respect the experience that they brought to the table because they were the true practitioners. And I just wanted them to be successful. And then I would say the next moment happened when I um, switched from being in operations in the oil industry to going to trading oil derivatives for the oil company that I worked for. And you really learn in the moment that what team dynamics looks like when we're all viewing different parts of the market and we need to make decisions at that time. And so it's in that dynamic of working on a really close team that you really figure out, like, it's the person with the next best move, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's how it goes on a trading floor. It's you have information, you have insights, you have a customer. So you started somewhat, you know, early in your career, clearly 60 days into your career. I want to wind the clock back even further because first of all, the fact that you ended up in that role okay. is super interesting, but I want to go way back to what you were like as a kid, like on the playground. Did, you know, were you organizing your friends? Were you sitting back watching everything unfold? Did you run for office? Did teachers see potential in you? Like, what was life like when you were a kid? I would say it starts with like summers on my grandparents' farm. So all of mm -hmm. us would come in and, um, and stay, you know, for a few weeks at my grandparents. I have what worked out to be about 17 first cousins. But when I was young, there was probably only about six of us. And so we would go to my grandmom's house. We would all hang out during the day because we were out of school. And my grandmother, my mother lived 10 hours away. So I was there for the summer. 
my other cousin's parents lived closer and maybe they would just come for the day. And so my grandmother had a policy of you were in charge of the next kid younger than you. Right. And so I was four. I had a three year old. She's like, well, where is he? I was like, I don't know. She's like, well, go find him. I had a six year old that was in charge of me. And so my grandma would be like, did you bring her to the dining room table? That's your job. So he would bring me, I would bring my real cousin. <laughs> and that's how it went for like our entire lives. And so my grandmother would ask the oldest, did you, feed, did you ask your brother if he wanted a snack? And he goes, no, he goes, well, then ask your brother. And then his brother would go, but ask me, do you want a snack? Yes. And he's like, grandma, um, five of us would like snack. And so like, she like really kind of said that you are not only responsible for yourself and somebody else is caring for you, but you also in turn have to care for somebody else. And I think that's a very vivid memory. My grandmother, if I was crying or upset, wouldn't ask me what was wrong. She'd ask my cousin who was in charge of me, what's wrong with her? I love this. Your grandmother has wisdom. Like that was amazing. First of all, to be in charge of six kids, quite young too, right? Like you're just saying the ages of three, four, six, like those are young children. You know, usually you'd say- Like, so I only had one kid. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like she came up with a plan that made it not just her she, she she infused in each of you a sense of responsibility but not more than you could really handle right she wasn't leaving like a 12 year old in charge of five younger kids that kind of thing happens a lot instead each kid had another child to be mindful of to take care of to, to i mean that's never heard, i've never heard of that and it, in some ways it ties to what you think of as leadership like everyone has something to contribute right everyone plays a part there's not like a hierarchy in the way you're thinking about like everyone coming together. Each person has a piece of it. And that this, this moment on the farm seems like a really sort of foundational uh, starting point for you. It really was. I mean, cause there's a lot you can get into as a kid on a farm, good and bad. Um, you know, not in like a super hazardous way, but it was a working farm. My grandparents earned their living. They raised my parents and my aunts and uncles on the farm. And so it was a pretty large working farm for our family. And so my grandparents had employees and things that would come in every day that would work on the farm as well. And so just, you know, she never, we were never really out of her eyesight, but she would say things like to the oldest, um, make sure the little one gets a cup of water. So that meant he needed to have a cup of water. And then I would get asked, and grandma says, you need to have a cup of water here. Right. And so that's kind of how it will work. Like she's like making sure we were hydrated. Did we have on sunblock? Where's your hat? She doesn't have a hat on. Where's her hat? And my cousin's like, you got to put your hat on. Grandma says you have to put your hat on. And so it was like that kind of thing. But here we are, fast forward many decades later, same cousin checks in on me. I check in on, you know, my younger cousin, right? Because it, it never kind of goes away. That's the person that you're supposed to be in charge of. Wow. I mean, generational difference right there. What a cool way to see that carry forward. That's that's really neat. Now, when you were getting into high school and things like that, did you get active in groups or like, w- was it all about the grades? Like, what kind of kid were you when you got a little bit older? My mom was a teacher when I was very young. So I was a kid who got good grades. I remember her very early on telling me, And I think this was because like my brother was born, my younger brother, I'm the oldest. And um, she told me in like when I was eight, she goes, hey, you should know I'm no longer checking your homework. I need you to tell me when you need help. 
Otherwise, use the resources. If you need a book for a book report before you before you leave school, go to the library and then we'll be downstairs and just say like, oh, I went to the library to get a book for my book report. And so I was like, oh, great. And she goes, I'm not going to follow up on homework. That's your responsibility. But I'm going to check your grades when they come in because that's going to be what matters. And so I was like, okay. I was pretty responsible as a kid. And I remember the first time my mom's like, should you be watching TV? Did you do your homework? I go, I thought you weren't checking on me anymore. Right. And she goes, okay. But when the grades come, I go, I'm fine. And so that's how it started. Grades continued well. And then she goes, then she added more things. I'm like, oh, I'm no longer running to the store every time you need poster board and glue. You better figure out your project schedule pretty early on. And we're only gone on Saturdays. When I come home from work, I'm not going to run to that the store to get you things that you need to do a project that you've known about for two weeks. So I started planning my stuff out and made me a planner. So, you know, pretty good grades. Um, I went to a STEM stream school for science, technology, engineering, and math from fourth grade to 12th grade. And I eventually became a chemist. I have an undergraduate degree in chemistry. And so, you know, pretty good grades, joined lots of clubs, um, was a president of a few because they you need that to get into college. But then also joined like interesting clubs. I remember a kid um, who sat in, the, in front of me because we sat alphabetically in my STEM school. And so we sat near each other and he said, oh, do you want to join my my club? I'm like, when is it me? I got after school clubs already. He was like, in the morning. I was like, oh, I can do it in the morning. How often? He goes, once a week. So I was like, okay. And it was the Chinese club. And so I go, am I going to be the only non-Chinese person? He goes, no, I'm recruiting. Chinese club doesn't mean that you have to be Asian. It just means that or first thing, who doesn't want good food first thing in the morning? And so those are the things, like you just, you join things that maybe would make you uncomfortable. But one kind of precursor to me being coaching was there was this group in my school called the student facilitators. We were the, the club that worked in the guidance office at lunchtime to help people apply for college. And I was like, I probably should that because now I end up coaching um, as a career. But very early on in high school, I was a member of this club and people would come in and they'd be like, oh, I want to apply to school. I'm like, what kind of schools? I would find the catalogs. I'm like, oh, that school's coming on this date, write it on your calendar and just kind of help them navigate the office before they had an appointment with the guidance counselor to talk about their, you know, their collegiate path or next at post high school, um, you know, priorities. And so that was like one of those things that you don't, it's not until I did a career pivot and process. I was like, oh, I've been doing this a while. I love hearing this. I, I have to say that I'm taking notes as a parent because um, my kids are now five and seven <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, how, you know, when, when, when I, can I like put the responsibility on them to like get their work done, plan their projects and what they have to buy? Like, you know, that that's really smart to like, you know, foster that independence right away. It worked out for you and your personality are clearly pretty driven. If it like, you know, second, third grade, you were able to do that and then, you know, getting a chance to go into a STEM school from fourth to 12th grade. Um, that's, that's really great. Were you growing up in Miami at the time? Like, where'd you grow up? No, I grew up in Baltimore in a very rough time in Baltimore's history and where, what was going on culturally. But I can say it was a good time for me. Like I went to great public schools. I had amazing teachers. I went science fairs. Like it was, it was a good time for me. Sometimes you can find the eye in the center of the hurricane. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting. I mean, the, how did you get the opportunity to go to a STEM school? I mean, that's selective, right? That's not, you don't get to choose it. You get to, you have to be chosen for it. 
you know, I'm not quite sure on that part because my mother was a school teacher at the time. So she knew how the system worked. And mm. so moved me from a primary school that was like pre-K to third grade and it was ending. And then she found a school that was just a few blocks away that was a STEM school. And um, and set you up on a track that was very different than a lot of your peers, I'm, I'm guessing. You know, yeah. for, for that time, it, it's you were given opportunities and exposed to, to ideas and you end up in, you know, chemistry major, you know, like that's, that's sort of the, you're sort of the poster child for why STEM for girls works, right? Like this is, this is where you want to get, you know, young black girls into a STEM program at a young age. Um, and then they go on to work for oil companies on the field. Like that's kind of amazing. And um, I didn't realize that there were STEM programs happening for so long. Like for me, it's something I think I was only aware of like 15 years ago. Um, so it's pretty neat to realize that there's been programs like that uh, going on in the country and, uh, like really focusing on bringing people in. So did you have a sense what you wanted to do when you were 12? Look, was there a next step career path wise for yourself? No, I just listened to what my mother said. And my mother was a science teacher, right? Oh, amazing. <laughs> like all, a lot of my first cousins are engineers. It's not like... It's not by accident. It's by design. Like it's, it's by design. Yeah. It's by design. My uncle was a welder and I'll tell one farm story. My uncle was a welder. And I remember in high school when we had to part, cause I was in engineering school, welding was a part of one of our classes, like probably three years. Like I learned how to spot weld, electric arc weld, all these welding things. And I said to my uncle, I'm like, I know how to weld. He goes, great. Now you can help me on the farm while you're here for the summer. I was like, I shouldn't have told you. I shouldn't have told you. But it was great because then I had somebody to ask questions to. But yeah, I think STEM works. Um, it definitely works. I, I've been a part of studies even when I was in college where we did outreach to second and third grade girls because that's really when the shift happened, when girls don't like science and engineering as much. And so I was a part of a larger study my professor was doing and he had a grant. And so he asked all of us, um, especially women and minorities that were in our um, science department, if we would spend um, one hour a week at a school that was close by. And he goes, one goal, one to get the girls really interested, but include everyone. So boys as well. And then also you need to give them a snack because it was a school where pe that wasn't heavily resourced. The kids weren't heavily resourced at home. And so um, he goes, if you make them do graphs, they can graph with M&Ms, they can graph with peanuts, raisins, whatever the school will, will buy the food supplies, but there should always be a snack included. And so I did a lot of stuff for like, oh, do you know what, you know, uh, some, some fruits have seeds, they would get to eat the fruit. So we bring in safety knives and things like that. They get to cut up, open the apples, the oranges, the grapes, is there a seed in there? And then when they were done and they had the fruit on their plate and we talked about the science behind it, they would get to eat the snack. And so those were the kind of experiments we did to interest girls in, in science. And it, hopefully it worked. I still have a picture of those little kids, um, on my bookshelf because I started when I was my sophomore year with that particular group and they were really interesting and great group of kids. Their teacher was in the room with us. Um, I even got to the point where I got let the, they dissected frogs. I brought in frogs and worms and like scalpels and gloves and they were into it. We made slides. I, I think it would be fascinating if anyone listening has this moment of realization that they were once in a room with you 
<laughs> counting M&Ms or dissecting frogs to reach out and tell Ebony how you're doing because the, the ripple effect is unknown right now. We don't know, but it's so powerful that you, you know, you had that path and you paid it forward. Um, you didn't, and you didn't wait very long to do that, you know, in early college. Um, so your mother clearly is a guiding force in your education. Um, she was well-educated. She knew the value of that. So she had sort of a path for you, but how do you know, <laughs> the the stuff, first of all, there are words in your introduction that I understand individually, but strung together. I'm like, I'm not quite sure what this is, which is to say you're doing work in a field that's, you know, particular <laughs> um, to the people in it, like everyone in it totally gets it. So how do you get exposed to a whole world like that? And what what point did you realize that was for you? Was that something that, that occurred to you in college? Did you get a chance to an, an internship, like work study, like how did you get a chance to go explore that kind of space? It seems really interesting. Um, you know what? It's always been a series of conversations with people. I literally, when I was in college, decided I didn't want to be a bench chemist, but I liked science and I wanted to figure out a way to apply it. So I got a master's degree in environmental protection, but I focused on the operational safety piece. And while I was in my classes, one of the guys that we took a bunch of classes together, he worked for a company um, he was doing safety full-time already. And he, he said, hey, do you want an internship? And I was like, yeah, I would love it. That was the first job I got out of college. Um, and it's from there that I've kind of used people that I was in conversation with or had aligned interests to move things forward. And the same for even in my career. I didn't realize, because sometimes we pivot and then we leave the experiences, the lived experience we have behind. And during the pandemic, um, I got an outreach on LinkedIn for an association. And he when I was like, oh, I, I don't really focus on your industry. I was doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching. And he's like, I know, but you're a career risk manager. And I was like, and he goes, yeah, you have all of these things. And this is our cybersecurity association. We'd like for you to speak on risk that you see currently during this COVID era. And I was like, I am a career risk manager. And your, your clients and people always tell you things you don't see in yourself. 100%. I 100% agree with that. If you're paying attention. If you're paying attention, paying attention, they'll tell you those things. And while you don't want to chase every loose thread out there, if it seems to be aligned, it could be a whole new avenue for you to explore. And that expertise you have in one arena, you suddenly realize is actually adjacent to this other expertise. And it's just a shift by degrees to become known in this other space, which once you're established as an expert in one thing is actually a lot easier to imagine um, becoming an expert in multiple things. But uh, if you try to be an expert from the get-go in like six things, everyone just thinks you're confused. <laughs> so you went deep into one area and then someone said, oh, no, no, you know this. I can tell from your LinkedIn, from your from your own career trajectory, from what you've been doing. That's that's great. Um, I had been curious sort of how you piece things together. At some point, though, you left the the like relative safety and I'm I'm saying relative safety now with all the mergers, acquisitions, layoffs, uh, downturn of economy, the relative safety of having a job, and became an entrepreneur. How did that shift happen? Like, when did you realize you didn't have to just stay in a company, but you could be working for yourself? They wanted to relocate my job and I didn't want to leave sunny South Florida. And I was like, you know, I've shoveled a lot a lot of snow. I lived in Chicago before I moved to Miami. So I know snow. I know I did seven winters. I know snow. 
And by the way, there's no snow. As somebody who grew up in Maryland, where we had snow days with two inches of snow, in Chicago, 10 inches overnight, you go into school and it's not, there's no delayed entry. And so I was like, the thought of snow days, like it's okay to visit, but to do it all the time, I wasn't at a point where I wanted to move back. And so for the first time in my career, I picked myself. Mm-hmm. And I had a non-compete. So I was off for a period of time. Um, and I decided to go to coaching school. And so I had always, one of the things my mom said to me is, you need to make sure that you have money so that you can have freedom. And so I had developed a sleep well at night and it's called a swan fund. And so people always talk about that as best practices for like financial management, but my swan fund, the sleep well at night, helped me be able to say no in that moment and then get some space to pivot. So I just wrote that down, swan fund, sleep well at night fund. Um, I love that. And you're, I'm glad your mother is getting all these shout outs because she's got some brilliant advice. But what a way to live, like rather than being, um, what is it, uh, golden handcuffs, right? It's a lot of people who get to a certain level of um, seniority in a field, like they, they, their lifestyle requires them to continue having those big paychecks. And there is no sleep well at night fund to lean back on if they decide they want to do something else. They're, they're really stuck. But you didn't have that concern. You had been building up um, a little safety net for yourself so that you were secure in making decisions for yourself, which meant you could take time off. You could focus on relearning or learning some new things, the like coaching school. Um, so kind of recalibrate where your gifts are and how you can show them to the world. What led you to do coaching? Was that already part of the work you'd been doing in-house? Was there was there a coaching component to the work you'd been doing in the company? There wasn't. I was just actually a leader of teams and helping to develop people. When I first got like that kind of purview, I hired my own coach. The company didn't even pay for it. I paid for it myself because I realized I needed more skills than what I was than what I had so that I could genuinely help the people that were that I was going to impact. Right. I didn't just want to influence them. I wanted to impact them and I wanted to help them transform. And so I paid for a coach for a while. And then when I was in that period where I was using my swan fund, it was about optimization of resources. So I went to coaching school because it was cheaper than paying for a coach for the year. <laughs> and I love this. Robbie's like, what? <laughs> I, it's it, true though. It's true. Going, I don't think people realize going to coaching school is a multiple cheaper than paying for, and I'm a coach, right? I'm an MCC, which is a master certified coach. There's only about a thousand of us accredited in the globe from the ICF out of 33,000. If I'm being honest with you. And I also wanted to have a transformation that I knew coaching school would give me so that when I went back into the workforce, I was going to be the person I wanted to be in that moment. Did you have a clear sense of who you wanted to serve at the end of this coaching training, like who your clients were going to be, what you're going to be helping them with, what, what challenges they were going to come to you to discuss. When I started, I was just going, I was my client. I would, I was the only one. I didn't think, I would think I was, I interviewed near the end of my period, my not going to be period. I was going back into corporate, but I wasn't going to move. This wasn't about starting a business. This was about literally, it was cheaper to go to coaching school and do the transformation than it was for me to hire a coach. And I wanted to build more resiliency for myself. 
And so it was literally just for me to be a better leader when I joined my next organization. But while I was in coaching school, a friend's sister was coming off a maternity leave and she asked if I would work with her. And I was like, well, you know, I've only been in coaching school for about a hundred and I'm 90 hours in of like a 400 hours than I have. Can you help me? And I was like, let's work on it. And so I just used the power of asking great questions. That they, that's the one thing they drill in in coaching school. How do you ask really good questions of other people to let their thoughts come into the room? And from there, we helped her determine what was the best culture fit for her? What was she looking for in her next role? How did she want to feel when she was there? Because somatic awareness is really important. And then she, we created a matrix in the days that she was happy with. That's really cool. Did that give you a taste that you could be doing this for yourself? Or did you still think you were going to go back into corporate? I still thought I was going back into corporate, quite honestly, until a friend told me, she was, oh, I referred another, a friend to you. Um, and she paid me. And then I was like, oh, then maybe I could do this. So I incorporated my company four months before I graduated. And I kept saying to myself, if not now, then when? And I also then thought back to my grandparents and my mom's generation was the first generation not to work, to work for other people, to not be entrepreneurs. And so I was like, yeah, I saw my grandparents create a good life. And I had to give myself, I still give myself pep talks. I'm in year eight. I still give myself pep talks on like, you can do this. Right. And so I gave myself a pep talk and then pulled the trigger. I was wondering how long it's been. So it was eight years ago. So we're now in 2022. So uh, around 2014, maybe? Um, oh, wait a minute. Not eight years ago. Hmm. Oh, well, my the seven-year anniversary of the company was this past November, so I'm in year eight. So seven years ago, seven yeah. Years ago. yeah. Yeah. But I started the company. So in 2015, I, I started the company, and I graduated from coaching school in 2016. So there's having the coaching skills, and of course, there's all the experience you've had as a leader in a company, but it's still different than running a business. So what were the challenges of getting the business model, business sy systems, whatever those pieces are? Was there, was there anything about that that you needed help with? Like, how did you sort of fill in the gaps of your knowledge for those other parts of like actually being the business owner? One, I asked friends. And so it was in my internal network of friends that really helped me. So a friend's husband, you know, did website development. He goes, Hey, if you give me four coaching sessions, I will build your network. I'll build your website. So he did that. And then another friend who was a journalist said, I'll go over the copy for your website for you. Happy to help you do that. I told my friend whose sister I help her husband is a graphic designer, like does amazing work. And she goes, he'll design your logo. He's going to call you in 20 minutes. Tell him what, you, what colors you like, what inspires you. And it's the logo I still use today. Wow. Right. And so it really was the power of friends and network and people in my circle referring me to others they knew that would be willing and open to helping me. Um, and, you know, I had gravitas because I, I'd helped people before. Like, you never know when you're planting a seed for a harvest that's going to come. And so I would say that's the one thing about networking. Um, I always talk about the reciprocity advantage. Like, you need to give, give, give. And then when you have an ask, people will joyfully come to you and respond. And so um, unknowingly, I, I use that um, in my network to help me grow. But for the business part, I, my one friend was an accountant. I go, can you help me set up QuickBooks? She was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so she came up, she was, are you cooking me dinner? I was like, would you like dinner? And she was like, 
I would. And I would like one of your cakes as well. So I made a cake. She set up my QuickBooks. <laughs> I asked another friend for a CPA and a bookkeeper and they like shared the one that they were using. And I really just like use my friends who some were entrepreneurs or went to business school or had parents who had businesses and I could tap into them. And then I also use the SBDC. So the small business development centers that are in state universities across the United States that the SBA gives funding to. And the SBDC helped me along with like school advisors and just kind of tapped into um, resources because my one friend made fun of me consistently for seven years and be like, I know, I know you don't want to pay for that because you're a startup. I was like a startup who is bootstrapped and self-funded. And so I'm not using BC money. I'm using my family, my money, the money I'd save, the money from my family to get this going. So yes, I'm going to be judicious in how I allocate funds. And so now that they started their own business four months ago, his favorite line of me, he goes, girl, you know, I'm a startup. I was like, oh, so now you're a startup. <laughs> I mean, his husband are like, we're startups now. We can't afford that. And I was like, See, when I was doing it, he goes, I know, I didn't realize until I was actually on this path with you that you really do have to think about resource management. Mm -hmm. And so I gleefully helped them. This is great. I, I love that um, you tapped your wider network for skills. Um, the, the fable of um, stone soup comes to mind. Like I spy someone who knows accounting. I spy, hey, uh, wait, does that person over there know something about graphic design? <laughs> you know, like you sort of like slowly kind of pulled together the pieces that you needed to get started. Um, you already, it sounds like you already had some entrepreneurs in your circle. Um, so that definitely helped people who have gone either entrepreneurs or gone to business school or had some sense of that or had a network themselves they could tap into. But that piece you said about reciprocity, I think of that as the philosophy of abundance. And years ago, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, my, my mother would get mad that I was giving away too much of my knowledge all the time. I was meeting with people in a coffee shop to just help you know, my brain and my Blackberry, like showing up places to help people. And I said, you know, it's like giving rides to the airport. You only give a ride to someone that is close enough to you that you know that you want to help them. You know that they would consider it a favor, but you also have the resource and you have the time. And when you need a ride to the airport, yes, you'll get it. But the, the really cool part is it may not even be from the same person you've given rides to, but you become known as the kind of person who gives rides. So you just become known as the person who's giving. Others are going to want to step in and help you. And I've, like you, I've been planting seeds my whole life. And so I've never felt like I was at a loss for anything because it's my own imagination that limits me <laughs> more than anything else. Like, thinking about who I could ask for support from is probably the, my most limiting factor. So it sounds like you've cultivated a really um, warm, encouraging community around you before you knew it was precisely what you even needed. It was kind of already who you were. Am I reading that right? You're a hundred percent right. This group and I, when I moved to Miami, I didn't have a lot of friends. We all had relocated here and we decided that we would be each other's local family. And so it's inside that spirit of giving and having Sunday dinners, you know, once or twice a month that, and they're the people I call today when I, I when I want something or need something or like want to tap into expertise. And, you know, they also, are, and the other people in that group are the first people that hired me in their organization, which was great. Wow. Yeah. What a great start. So let's talk specifically about networking. We've been sort of dancing around this topic, but do you have any 
um, thoughts around like you have, you know, you have your inner circle of people like the, clearly these people will be part of that. But then you have those outer layers, the second and third tiers out the people that you might see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago, but you haven't really had a reason to recently. You like each other. I should have prefaced with that. You enjoy each other's company. Um, how do you think about nurturing and sustaining those kinds of connections? Do you have any habits, philosophies, practices? I do. And uh, I'm going to lean a little bit on sometimes what I teach when I teach networking. And so, um, and I'm an introvert. So I, I put a lot more thought into it than say extroverted people because they naturally are able to talk to people. And, but for introverts, it's a little bit more draining for us. So I typically will categorize my people in my network, especially professionally. They either are great for introducing me to other people. They're great with helping with the operations of something I need to get done or they're great on the strategic level. Like they're big thinkers, macro thinkers, and they help me, I call it read the label on my own jar because you can't read the label of the jar that you in. And so they're my jar readers. And so when I meet people, I'm like, oh, you know what? This person knows everybody. They are the mayor. I need to keep in touch with them, emails, text messages, sending like, you know, a forward in their DMs of a video, a short video I like from like Instagram or YouTube or something like that. Those are ways that I nurture those relationships. For the strategic people, I'm always like, hey, let me know if I can help you with anything. I read this book. There's some great tips that I learned. If you want a quick debrief of it, let me know. I think it's tangential to what you're doing. And then for the people that are on the operation side, we actually, for the people that I really want to hold close, I offer to just meet with them regularly. Like some, for some of them, it's once a week. For some of them, it's in a WhatsApp chat group. And we're just all adding things and you can put a question in and you'll get a, tons of responses. And so that's kind of how I, I nurture and it works for me for the amount of time that I have, but it's, it's been good. Like, you know, I'm happy to answer and I do a lot of five minute favors. And so, you know, Adam Grant has that concept of like, if you can do a micro loan of your talent, gifts or network in a five minute chunk then try to do that, you know? And I, I, in the beginning, when I was trying to adopt the behavior on a professional level, I would do it like, you know, two or three times a day, like, hey, anything you need. And other people started doing five minute favors for me as well. And so that's in alignment with what you talked about around the, the generosity. I love that. I actually, uh, I read some of Adam Grant, but I don't recall that particular phrase, five minute favors. Um, that's, that's pretty great as a way to conceptualize um, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole hour of your time, particularly if it's something you're, that you uh, do easily, right? Like for you, it's easy. For other people, it's not, right? Like I, you know, for someone else, like, you know, reading through a chart of accounts and figuring out how to re, you know, reconstruct them to be, make sense for the, the next tax season would be like 15 minutes of their time. And for me, it's like a headache, right? So it's like knowing that there are other people who specialize and they love doing that. Um, years ago, this reminds me, I had a friend who actually cleaned my apartment for his surprise party <laughs> and help me decorate it thinking it was a surprise it was a surprise party for somebody else <laughs> because he <laughs> loves he loves cleaning like he loves cleaning the way some people love cooking right and so um he <laughs> thought it was so funny people start coming to the door that he knew and he was like wait i don't understand who i know these people how come i know these people <laughs> but you know recognize that not everyone shares your talent like some people joyfully will do the thing that you're like eh, i don't really love that part 
Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I joyfully do that. Like, can you help me write myself evaluation? Sure. Absolutely. That's going to take about 20 minutes. Um, send me what you wrote so far. I will do all in a Google Doc and collaborate on it. And so I've done that for many, many friends and like help them put their career plan together. And so for, it's easy for me. And they're like, oh, wow, I seem like I was a great contributor. I love this. So it was my favorite closing question. Um, I ask all my guests. So um, one, I really hope that we stay connected. I don't know which of those three categories I'll fall into because I feel like I could do any of them. I love, I love all those things. I was like, yes, yes, and yes. Um, I guess it depends what people need. But um, it's like it's a year from now, and I say, hey, Ebony, it was, it wasn't it last year that I I interviewed you? So you know, what have you been up to in the past year? What could we be celebrating? What are you looking forward to in your head? What are we going to be celebrating a year from now? Um, there's some infrastructure stuff I need to do in the business that I've been doing. And so I look forward to the completion of these infrastructure things around like cybersecurity and, you know, systems architecture, just so that we can grow and expand. And so that I really live out the fact that every 13th week, I take a week to recharge and sharpen my home, my vision for my life. And then also for my company and the team members who work for me. That's awesome. When you said you're talking about infrastructure in your business, I'm thinking it's not the sexiest thing, but it's so important. And I think we put it off and then we stifle our own growth. So I can't wait to celebrate you completing those tasks and getting that all aligned. That's thank you for mentioning that. I feel like we all are like, oh yeah, this is a good time of year to be thinking about that. So fantastic. Um, I can't wait for more people to find out who you are, who are part of my network. How can people find you and follow your work? LinkedIn is a great place. And so my short code on LinkedIn is Ebony Smith. And um, so anything else besides LinkedIn? Just I also have your uh, your website here. It's true, right? Oh, yes. We're doing infrastructure improvement. So there's a content hub that's going to go up in two weeks for the start of the new year. And you can join mailing lists that will give you worksheets and um, journal questions to help you explore your own personal transformation. So we have a link to ebonumequation.com and your LinkedIn and Twitter all on the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Thank you so much for, for hanging out and having this conversation with us, Ebony. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you to everyone. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ebony. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 320. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E.
This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.